Welcome to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Experts. I'm your host, Doug Peters. Today, we're going to be talking about the Travis Roy Foundation, and I am honored to have two people I consider to be very dear friends. I have Lee Roy, who uh, his title is Travis Roy's father, uh, and he also is a dodo, dodo, doe, doe bird hunter. Um, and we also have Travis, who is the founder of the Travis Roy Foundation, uh, author, artist, and I say that as a very accomplished artist he is. Uh, I've got some of his works. My mother cherishes the cards that uh, you produced, uh, along with being a former hockey player. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for taking time to be with us today. Uh, it's great to be with you, Doug. I'm thrilled. Always nice to talk with people on the West Coast. Well, that is, as Ed Peduto, who's another uh, East Coast guy, he doesn't believe that anything but the East Coast time zone matters, and we're here to kind of <laughs> disprove him a little bit today. But uh, I want to thank you both very much for coming to talk with us today. Um, we want to get uh, into a discussion about the Travis Roy Foundation and what they're doing. Uh, to try to uh, eliminate uh, spinal cord injuries with a cure for it. And it's something uh, near and dear to my heart, the foundation is, and we want to chat about that. But first, I want to touch a little bit with Lee, because Lee, you're the reason that uh, I know your son as well as I do, as well as your family. Um, you and I go back many years, and I'm going to share a little bit of a story. And the first time that you called up, you're with the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland, Maine, I believe. And uh, you called up and were looking to order some parts and you got me on the phone and I had never talked to you before. And by the end it was, Dougie, I hope you have a great day. And it was like we were best friends. And it was like, I got off the phone and I was going, holy cow, this guy just is, is an awesome guy. Uh, I don't know if you recall <laughs> that or not. Recall that or not. The, the check is in the mail for you to, uh, to, to, re to remember that. No, obviously I fooled another person, so I, you know, that was good. <laughs> but again, you know, there, I, I, I go back further than that because that's the '80s, and and you know, uh, again, to let the audience know that I'm really old. I mean, I, I met Frank J. Zamboni Senior when I first. Uh, got in the business in 1972 and ordered our first Zamboni for the Portland Ice Arena in Portland, Maine. So, uh, you know, you're, you're a latecomer, Doug, as far as uh, uh, being, uh, you know, that way. But at the same time, uh, the friendship that I've had with you ever since uh, the, the Civic Center has, has been, you know, one that we both uh, cherish. I know that. So uh, anyways, go ahead. I do. I, I, it's your family has been awesome. I've been blessed uh, to meet and spend a fair amount of time with your mother before she passed away uh, just this year. And we'll talk a little bit more about her uh, in a bit. But uh, I, I do have a question for you, Lee, before we get into talking with Travis about uh, the foundation and all his hard work with it. Um, do you think that your career in the ice rink industry is what drove Travis to become the hockey player he became? Um, not really. Uh, you know, he was guilty by association because growing up, 
um, at age 20 months. Um, and he, he does tell the story with mostly the truth behind it is that I was at the, at the time, North Yarmouth Academy Ice Arena. And at 20 months, we put him in a pair of skates. And the only thing that I knew that would fit him properly and give him the support necessary was figure skates. So I did grind off the points. And he does admit, and he, he understands that the first time he did skate was in figure skate. But really, from that point on, uh, I was all but a few years involved with the ice industry right up to 2001. Uh, so his growing up, he grew up in an ice arena. And, you know, it was his passion. It, it, it wasn't necessarily because uh, his his father, you know, was this or that. It was simply uh, the opportunity was there with the uh, different arenas that I was managing, uh, the Civic Center and so forth. So it was it was all him. Uh, we, I just had the fun of, of coaching him and a lot of other great kids. Travis, what do you remember most about growing up and uh, <laughs> your love? I, I know you have a true passion for hockey, and one of the things yeah. I I remember is you talking about. One of the biggest things you miss about it is the smell. Maybe yeah. you can tell us about your youth. I got to tell you, it's a real treat to, to be on here and, and talking hockey because so much of my life, the last 25 years, has been devoted to spinal cord injuries, and I'm proud of that, and we'll, we'll get there. But it's really fun for me to talk hockey. Um, I don't do it quite as much, especially, uh, you know, reminiscing. Um, but I actually think my dad proved, proved I, I think yeah, that would have been an affirmative response, that, that it was a big part of um, just, just having opportunities to be in a rink. Um, but I, I don't remember that, that uh, 20 months old and that first time out, but all of my memories at a young age are, are of, um, either being in a rink. Um, uh, again, my dad, my dad had a little bit of a gap. Um, but, uh, it, and if it wasn't in a rink, it was on the pond. I, I, I'm glad that, that pond hockey has made its, uh, way back into mainstream, uh, uh, hockey, but, um, uh, but I, I certainly, um, any, any memory, uh, uh, whether it was, uh, in, in the rank or, or my dad's affiliation back to the Cumberland County Civic Center, because that was initially the old Maine Mariner days. And, uh, and it was always fun to just go in and, and, and watch the game. And my, my dad was, uh, sort of managing oversighting security there. But if I get bored, I'd, I'd go on the back, uh, back of the rank where the practice nets were. And I'd just play, you know, street hockey. Uh, while the other game was going on, so lots of lots of good memories from a, from a very early age. Well, that's great, and I remember I, th I think the first time that I got to uh, learn about you and your talents um, was probably when you were in high school, I think, and uh, or maybe a little bit before then, and uh, kept trying to convince your dad that because I think you were considering going to a U of M, just not the right U of M. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, learned about your, your talents and your hard work. And um, I've always been impressed by uh, people um, like you with your talent that you had, where you may not have been the most gifted, um, but you got every, you, you didn't leave anything out. You always put it out on the line. And that's what I think made you the great hockey player um, that you were. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong uh, about that, but I think that that's what drove you to, to be as yeah. great as you were. 
I was never, I was always small. I, I hit puberty late. I was always kind of undersized. I, I um, was diagnosed with a little bit of dyslexia when I was, when I was younger. So I was always kind of, you know, one of those underdog. Um, I always felt that I had to um, work twice as hard to, to, to be as good as everybody. And, uh, and when I finally grew up a little bit and got stronger, um, that, then it really started to pay off. But uh, it, it was, um, you know, I, I did want to go to the University of Maine and at Orno and Sean Walsh was a the coach there. And, uh, and I, and I spent my whole life growing up in Maine and Yarmouth and, um, working at my dad's rink. And, um, you know, that was back in the early nineties when Paul Correa was there and, the, um, uh, you know, the Ferraro brothers and, and they were, they just won a national championship. Anyways, they were, they were great, but I, I wanted to see what else was, um, I wanted to see what else was out there and, and, and having the chance to go down to Boston and, be in the city and kind of really enjoyed uh, getting to know Jack Parker and, and Mike Boyle, the strength and conditioning coach. Again, I was always trying to get bigger and stronger. Um, but, but those were the times that, um, uh, uh, you know, that I remember most certainly those early days in, in Maine and um, just working my way through. And, and, and just, I always had this little, I've always been a goal setter, but the thing in the back of my mind was I just wanted to see how good I could be. Um, I wanted to see how fast I could skate. I wanted to see how accurately I could shoot the puck. And, and that was always sort of the underlying current with my hockey hockey career. Um, and I didn't know if I was going to end after high school or maybe Division three college or or maybe even Division one. Who knows? Maybe after that. Um, but uh, that's what uh, those are. Those are the dreams. And, and as you say, I was always always kind of fighting the uphill uphill battle. But um, it, it, it's that it's that chip on your shoulder that 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 pays off after if you stick to it. Well, it certainly did pay off. And it was interesting. I was doing a little bit of background research, even though I, I know you on a personal level. Um, not as much did I know about uh, your career uh, in high school and that uh, you ended up at Tabor Academy, which I got to visit a couple of years ago, or probably more than a couple of years ago now, um, when they're in the process of buying a machine. What a beautiful uh, campus. And uh, I, I'm sure... Well, I, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but maybe I can ask you if the campus and just the setting is what uh, uh, helped make you decide that that's where you wanted to go. It, it was definitely part of it, and uh, but it was also again coming from Maine, um, the, the the way to college hockey in the in the 90s um, in New England was was more or less through kind of the traditional New England boarding school prep schools, um, and when I got down to Tabor Academy, it was one of those things where my my Parents are working uh, hard hours and, and extra hours and running hockey camps and, you know, so they could afford to send me there. And um, and when I got there, I, every, every day, just as you say, it's right on Buzzards Bay, right near Cape Cod. And and I just thought, oh, how lucky am I to be here? Um, and I just wanted to make sure I took advantage of the opportunity. And um, the nice thing about those schools, and this is a little bit more philosophical, but I, I, I really enjoyed, I always, as much as hockey was always my passion, it drove me. I was always one to kind of pride myself on being a more well-rounded um, kid. I wanted to be more than just a hockey player. Um, and going to New England prep school uh, gave me that opportunity. I, I played three sports. I um, uh, participated in some of the activities. They have a big sailing program, uh, getting out on a sailboat on the weekends. And um, uh, But it was it was a special place for me and, and, a, and a great Great, great school, and, and and really, I've had an opportunity. I do do a lot of public speaking, and I've spoken a lot of the New England prep schools, 
and they're all very similar. Just great, great faculty, a great place to learn, to mature, to develop, um, both academically as a person and uh, and certainly athletically. It's one thing that you mentioned there that I'm trying to stress. I've got a nephew who's got a son who is supposed to be a pretty good hockey player. Haven't seen him play yet. He's a peewee. He played up in Quebec at a tournament up there. He played, uh, he's been in Russia. He's gone to Canada, it seemed like every weekend before the COVID situation. And I've been trying to convince him to tell his son to play multiple sports. And I go back to when I was in high school, which was 112 years ago, and um, Mike Ramsey, who played on the 1980 Olympic team, was a multiple sport player. And Herb Brooks, who I'm a big fan of, a disciple of his coaching, in that telling the people to play uh, multiple sports. And then your dad influences my opinion on things as well, and that he said that if a kid is good enough, no matter where they play, they'll find them. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, your opinion and take on whether current situation is too much focus on one sport um, or if you think that's okay or if they should be trying to do uh, multiple sports to expand their capabilities. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in certainly the um, multiple sports, especially especially, you know, through, through, you know, towards, towards high school and hopefully through high school, I understand if maybe you started to specialize at the end of your high school career. Um, but it's just, there, there are so many benefits. One, you have multiple social groups, you get to meet different people. You're not in the same locker room and the same mentality. And, and, uh, I think for being honest, sometimes it can be a little bit of a hockey mentality and, uh, and it's refreshing to kind of get outside that circle. Um, uh, I played a lot of soccer. Um, of course, we know that uh, hockey, they, they, you got to be, um, you have to have the instincts to, to read and react. And soccer is one of those games early on where you don't kick the ball to the person. You you, you kick it to where the person is going to be. And um, and you learn that in, on the on the soccer field. And it very quickly applies to, uh, to, to hockey. We always know that that was Wayne Gretzky's, one of his uh, specialties and any of the great hockey players. Um, and then the other one is, you're just using different muscle groups. Uh, to use the same muscle group from age six or seven or whenever you start playing all the way through to, um, you know, to when your hockey career ends without, without mixing something else in um, just isn't, uh, isn't in the best interest of, of your long-term health and truthfully your long-term hockey career. Um, so I, uh, uh, I, I know that uh, it, it kind of goes against it. Uh, the, the, one of the things that I think this changed is, um, you know, the rinks are open year round now and, and they're selling ice. The, the goal is to sell ice. So that means you've got to come up with a different hockey camp or you've got to come up with a different all-star camp or you've got to come up with a skills camp or you've got to come up with power skating. And, and I'm, I'm probably hurting your business. Well, it's, it is what it is now, but um, it, uh, it's, it, it, it would be nice if they kind of got the kids out of the rinks a little bit more, I think, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably not helping, uh, helping the world of uh, Zamboni sales by saying that. That's okay. It, it is something, and again, I'll, I'm going to tap into a Leeism, if we can refer to it as that. Lee, it's uh, what you referred to as checkbook hockey. And I've got uh, a couple of grandkids who 
my stepson learned about checkbook soccer, that they were all-stars because they could write the check for the, the soccer. And I've got another stepdaughter who is a big-time soccer player, so I try to keep her in check, Travis. I don't want to let out any secrets that soccer might be good for hockey players. But uh, it, it is it is a challenge, and I think that um, it is something that I think that if kids can play multiple sports, whatever they are, uh, it's going to help, uh, I think, as you said, round them out to be a better person. So yeah. yep. maybe we can uh, touch a little bit about uh, when you're making your decision. And I, I wasn't a very good salesperson uh, to get you convinced enough to go to the University of Minnesota. Um, but I, I know that you had multiple offers and uh, I know you made a great choice. But were there any other schools that uh, that really came close to uh, getting you to go there as opposed to BU? Yeah, there, I mean, there were a few. Um, the, my, my dad was is a Hall of Famer at, at University of Vermont, um, and I had been to a game when I was younger, and, and my recruiting trip to the old Gut, you know, Gutterson Fieldhouse, and it was such an awesome environment. Um, and that was certainly on my list. Um, a guy, um, so a guy by the name of Roger Grillo, um, was also, ironically, he was my eighth grade life sciences teacher. Um, and he left halfway through the year and he ended up at uh, uh, Norwich University and then he ended up at UVM and uh, he was the assistant coach there. So it was kind of interesting to have my eighth grade teacher recruiting me to play at UVM. And that was kind of fun. Um, as I mentioned, I always dreamed of playing at, 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 at Maine. Um, and uh, in the late to mid, I'm sorry, the mid, mid 90s at, at Maine, they had some Sean Walsh was under some investigations. There was a little bit of concern as to uh, where the program stood and what what was going to unfold, and um, and so that that piece, in addition to me realizing I'd, I'd spent my most of my life in Maine and I I just wanted to see what else was out there, um, kind of led me down to Boston. I, uh, I I mentioned I wanted to be a well-rounded person, and and when I went on my recruiting trip to BU, um, the 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 guys were just they loved their hockey. It was great, but they also had some other things. It was also fun to go across town and go watch Northeastern play a, a preseason game. And uh, um, and I just really enjoyed – there was very much a blue-collar feel to the team um, back then. And they also had a heck of a team. Uh, and I – you know, Chris Drury was on that team. Uh, Mike Greer was on that team. Jay Pandolfo was on that team. Uh, there were a number. Tom Pody would later come in be on that team, Ricky DiPietro. It was, there were a lot of just really good um, hockey players. And, and going back to what I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to see how good I could be. And I knew if I put myself around the best players, um, it would help me answer that question. So, um, and, and then the last thing I'll say, um, Coach Parker, um, uh, when I met with him, uh, I, I just, I, he just was, I felt like he was honest and, and said, here's the deal. We'd love to have you. Um, and there was almost a little bit of a remind me a little bit of my dad in, in some ways, I guess, just because he here's the deal and we'd love to have you. And and uh, we, we think we, you'll look good in the scarlet and uh, scarlet and white. Um, and, it, and it just it, it worked out. I mean, for the you know, for the most part, um, uh, certainly certainly that first game, the, the things didn't. But every other aspect of that. And and I think anybody that goes through the recruiting process. Um, and all the coaches more or less told me along the way, I also looked at UNH and, um, and they said, you know, make sure you find it when you make your decision, 
that you're making it beyond just the hockey program, that if, uh, if there wasn't hockey, are you still going to like it here? Um, and I, uh, that was, that was certainly part of my decision. I always assumed that, you know, hockey would be there and it's going to, um, you know, keep opening doors, but that was in the back of my mind. And, and Boston provided me with that opportunity. It was also the best at the time academic school, uh, the, the ones I was looking at aside from Harvard. Um, but I knew that was going to be a challenge to, to make sure everything worked out to get there. But. Well, that's great. Um, with regards to BU, I have a whole new respect uh, for Jack Parker. Um, being a Minnesota boy and oh. being a Golden Gopher mm -hmm. fan, um, it was a great rivalry back in the 70s uh, and uh, prior to the 1980 Olympics with Herb Brooks as a coach. And there was a lot of uh, bad blood, I think, between the University of Minnesota and uh, BU because of the BU guys trying to beat up the poor little Golden Gophers a couple times. <laughs> yeah, it happened. <laughs> and it was very interesting. Um, a good, another good friend of both of ours, or all three of ours, uh, Eddie Peduto, was kind enough to lend me a book, uh, The Making of a Miracle, uh, by Mike Ruzioni, who right. had his, his, his version of what occurred between the Gophers and, and the Terriers. <laughs> and, and somewhere in between, I think, is the truth. But um, I, I have to, as a Gopher fan, it's kind of hard. It's kind of like Ed Peduto uh, being a BC guy. It's kind of hard for him to give credit to anything. But I'm a little softer than he is. And uh, I have all the respect in the world for Mr. Parker. And I know how much he how much time he's taken and spent by your side maybe you can give us a little bit deeper look into him as a coach and him as a person um uh, i i'd be happy to because he's uh he's definitely a special person in my life um one of my first i was i was definitely a little intimidated i i liked him i was excited to play for him but I, was, I was certainly intimidated i think as any freshman is when you come into a big uh, division one program like that and i um, I was a little slow in picking up some things. I remember one of our first practices, we had been working on the breakout, and we had three different breakouts, and uh, and I didn't quite know as well as I should. And he dumped the puck in, and we broke it out, and I and I screwed it up, and he, he uh, blew his whistle and kind of said, come on, child, let's get this. He dumped it in, I screwed it up again, and finally he came over. He said, Travis, he said, which breakout do you know? <laughs> and I said, I, I, you know, I told much what he said. All right, I guess we'll go with that one, Travis. Uh, um, but uh, the thing that always uh, impressed me, and he again, he was uh, he was at the hospital, you know, that night and uh, and most nights afterwards, and during that, uh, and I was in the intensive care unit, and over two months there, and uh, he made a regular visit, and then the the big one for me was when I got back to Boston University. After my accident, I made the decision. I had six months of rehab. I had about uh, four months of being at home in, in, in Maine and trying to figure out this new body and care attendants and just the medical pieces. And um, and I just knew that uh, the one thing my dad always said was my academics would take me further in life than anything else. I was hell-bent on trying to prove him wrong. Um, but it uh, turns out that the academics were, were going to play a big role. Um, so when I got back to BU, it was it was hard because I didn't. Again, I was trying to figure out who I was and how I fit in. Um, I'd only been at BU for about a month and a half that first sort of freshman year before my accident, 
Um, and when I came back, there was just, I think everybody was that assumption that I would just, you know, kind of gel right back in with the team. And I was a hockey player and, and it would all go naturally. And, and uh, turns out it didn't quite work that way. Uh, when you play a college sport, certainly a Division One sport, it's, it's really a full-time job. And then you've got the academic piece, which is another full-time job. So I found that when I wasn't in the locker room every day, if I wasn't on the bus going to the games, if I wasn't in line doing the drills, I just, I felt, I just felt like I was missing out on everything. And I was always trying to like connect the dots and figure out who was dating who or what, what Coach Parker was mad at this player for. And, and eventually I realized that it really wasn't – I just needed to let it go. And, um, and I, I, I still went to all the home games and whatnot. So I wasn't as close to the hockey team as I, as I, uh, as maybe I would have thought. At the same time, we can get into that later. But it's also really hard to be around it because to go down that locker room and to be at the games and, and to see my dream unfold every time I rolled into that rink and, and, and to not be a part of it, which really made it a nightmare. But the thing that did happen, going back to, to your comment, was Coach Parker, uh, he would check in on me regularly. He, he lived uh, two doors down from my dorm um, in a brownstone. And uh, he would come and chat, and he'd give me updates on, on what was going on with the team and, and uh, who, wasn't, uh, who wasn't getting the job done. And he'd, he'd actually even bounce some things off of me. And uh, one of the things that I always – I appreciate I appreciated that he would be so open with me and tell me as much as he did um, just about the team um, and the guys. But but one of the other things that was going on, um, there were a couple of different times where the Bruins uh, inquired about uh, him as, as the coach. And, and uh, I forget if it was my sophomore or junior year, but they put a pretty hard press on him uh, to, to go coach for the Bruins. And he spent a couple nights in my, uh, in my dorm room, just, just thinking it through and, uh, and uh, trying to figure it out, and and I said, well, I said, coach, what's the goaltending situation, you know? And uh, you know, different questions. He's like, you you do know what you're talking about, Josh. You're always gonna build from the goalie out. And uh, so again, I was I was young, but I appreciated the, that he listened to my thoughts and um, and opinions. And and it's been it's been that way ever ever since. Uh, uh, instead of uh, he's also a big movie buff, so we would. We would do dinner. He'd come grab me. We'd get dinner. We'd go to a movie uh, in the middle of the season. And uh, before and after, after I graduated from BU, I, I, I ended up living right outside of Kilmore Square and still close by. And we continue to do dinners and movies. And um, it, it's, it's special. He's a, the, the thing that I don't think people realize is just how I – mean, people probably understand he's smart, but he's smarter than you realize. He's also just wise, um, and his wisdom was what always – um, I, I, I always paid close attention to that to, to, to turn down the, the, the Bruins job on a couple of occasions and some other opportunities. And, and he, he always kind of thought it through and maybe didn't do what people may have would have expected him to do. Um, uh, just like retiring. Um, he could still be coaching. He could be with Jerry York sort of neck and neck on the all time win list, but you know, he, that's not what it was about. It wasn't about, uh, setting any records. It was about putting in the effort and being, being uh, competitive and, and competing and, and being the best while he was there, but also realizing that there's more to life. Um, so, well, I, I got from this book and I get from listening to you um, that I think in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, he is making a difference uh, in the 
lives of many. And, and that struck home so much. I don't know if you've read the book by um, Mike Arizioni or not, but if you haven't, I would suggest it. And I, I do have it and I, and I, and I haven't, but uh, that, that was the other thing I'll say. What did he have? Like 450 sons, basically. I, <laughs> he had two daughters. He had two daughters um, and, and 450 sons. And, uh, and I think I had an opportunity to almost be as close as any of them, um, which was, which was special. Yeah. And, and that's what uh, Mike talked about was that um, Jack really helped mold him and I can hear it in you. I, I see it in you. And I think with, with him, he maybe could have gone on and did other things and it and been very successful at it. I, I don't doubt that, but I think he knew what was important and he did things. And I, I look at your situation and I, I think I've discussed this with you and I know I've discussed it with your parents. It's very unfortunate the accident that happened, but I think that you have um, changed so many lives in um, what you've done with the Travis Roy Foundation. And that's not to say that you couldn't have done that if the accident didn't happen, but uh, I just think what you've done is so incredible. Uh, and you know, I think that a lot of people owe you many thanks for the burden that you've had to bear to make other people's lives better. So. Thank you. Thank you, Doug. It means a lot coming from you. And again, we've, we've gotten to know each other pretty good over the years, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, I always, I always wanted to be the, um, uh, you know, you, you dream of being in the NHL and, and having a, having a stage where you can do things beyond hockey and go to the children's hospitals. And, uh, and I was, you know, that part of me, that was part of the dream was I, I wanted to, you know, be, be the NHL player, but also to be involved in the community and, and the efforts to um, make people's lives a little bit better. And, and this, you know, worked out very different. Um, but I, I knew early on that there was an opportunity there. There was a little bit of a spotlight just because of the way the story became so public and, and the attention that it received. And, um, you know, I was, I was also injured about six months um, after Christopher Reeve, and um, and I and I he was sort of one of my one of my role models, and and seeing how he, him do what he did, especially being on a ventilator, and, and I thought, well, maybe I can do it in a smaller way in in Boston and and, and New England, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a uh, it's certainly given my life purpose, um, and and that was there were. T- Two things, you know, I, I wanted to make sure my life had purpose. And I also just, just want to be a productive part of society. And the, the foundation has allowed me to do that. Getting my degree at BU kind of um, made some opportunities uh, more available or for me to, to do the work work we're doing. And um, it's, uh, um, again, to, to have purpose, to be able to touch people's lives where we have. But one of the big, one of the big, because here we are with the, with the hockey background, the, the hockey family, the hockey community um, is such a massive part of the success um, of my story personally and, and very much the success of, of the Travis Wright Foundation. I mean, there's if you're going to go through a tragedy of, of uh, something similar to what, what my family and I have gone through, um, there's there's no better support system um, than than the hockey community. Um, Again, early on, my dad knows his stories better than me. But you know, whether it's Wayne Gretzky coming to my hospital room, or or all of the envelopes and the and um, 
from from little mite players across the country that uh, that had seen it on the news and raised a few dollars and, and mailed it in. Or um, I I literally just got an email from our director at the foundation uh, this week with a photo of a hockey stick. And I'm sorry, I sent a somebody was was up in Maine and and uh, was uh, at a I don't know if it was a junkyard or th- wherever it was, but a bunch of old hockey sticks and there's one hockey stick that had tr and bu on it and uh they they sent an email asking if it was maybe mine and maybe it was something i wanted to have back and and i thought well there's a few sticks that are missing but it would be cool to find it but i back my mind i thought you know i bet it was some just young hockey player that um was taking me out on the ice with them and uh it was um it was just that you know was, uh, just at the 24 and, and my name and and bu and 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 that's Again, from the early days to, to today, the, the hockey community continues uh, to, to support the story and, and uh, make it as successful as it's been. Well, I don't know how much um, you want to talk about that. I'm open to whatever you do. I will tell you, um, you know, we're coming up, you, you know it better than I do, obviously. It's coming up on 25 years, which is hard to believe. Um, I'll share a little bit about my first and it's, it's emotional for me because I know your family so well and um, know what you've had to go through to a, a much smaller degree than um, some others do. But uh, I can remember it's burned in my brain of riding my bike down. I was living in my old house over in Lakewood uh, and riding my bicycle down to the liquor store to get a newspaper, as I would typically do on a Saturday morning. And on the front page of the LA Times, now we have to set the stage that 25 years ago, uh, hockey wasn't in California what it is today. And on the front page of the LA Times was uh, a story about um, your accident. And I pedaled myself as fast as my fat body would pedal uh, back then to get back home and call Ed Peduto to uh, find out what happened. And it was it, it was a challenge for me to grasp it. Uh, your book that I want to touch on, um, called Eleven Seconds, uh, that took me probably ten years before I could read it because it was just too close to me uh, to um, to read that because it made it real. Uh, and it just is something that uh, the hockey community, as you talk about, came together. Uh, it's been great. I, you know, again, I'm sorry you've had to go through what you've had to go through, uh, but it's your efforts haven't gone unnoticed and un, uh, unwarranted. They're just, and that's probably not the right word. Um, y- what you've accomplished is is amazing, and I just want to thank you for that for everything that you've done. Oh, um, it's. As I say, it's been a ride. Um, I, I never, I never thought it could be as good as it is. Um, I'm not saying that everything's hunky dory and there aren't hard days. Uh, but, but again, I, I, I realize I'm sort of the, the, the poster, the, the name on the, on the front of this story. But um, it's uh, there's so many people that that have played leading roles and, um, and, and again made it as successful as. Uh, as it is and, and the other thing what what i take a little bit of um 
you know, pride and, and some relief in is I, I again, 25 years. I've seen um, the stories of Jack Jablonski and Dana Lang and, and I wish, I wish it would, we had a better therapy and treatment and uh, uh, to, to make the outcomes better for these families that are going through it. But um, really we, we, the, the progress has been immense, but it hasn't gotten to the clinical stage yet where, where, where humans are, are regaining function like we, like we all hope. But I've, I've, I just know how the hockey community surrounds, um, has surrounded other, other stories. Um, and it's incredible, again, what they've done with the Believe Foundation um, in, in Minnesota. And, uh, Dan, and I know there's, there, there's many other uh, uh, players, unfortunately, but, but there's always been that support for them as well. And um, so, it's, so my story isn't all that, isn't all that unique. There's, there's a lot of uh, other people that have, that have held up the torch and, and tried to help, help get to a better day uh, for, for those dealing with paralysis. And, and hopefully we'll get there. Great. Can, do you want to talk a little bit about the book, Trav? I know that's been uh, sure. a long time since it got published, but uh, maybe the highlights of it and uh, where people yeah. can get that if they want to read about it. Yeah. So, so eleven seconds was, um, you know, reflective of the the, the eleven seconds that I eleven seconds that I played hockey at Boston University my very first shift, um, and eleven seconds later they blew the whistle and that was it. Um, but I. I Certainly never thought I'd write a book, uh, that's for sure. Um, and uh, it's a little bit of a neat story. Uh, shortly after my accident that winter, um, E.M. Swift, Ed Swift, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated, did a, a, a large um, uh, feature article in, in Sports Illustrated, and spent some time with my dad uh, up in Maine and um, uh, and really got to know the family pretty well. And, and once uh, we decided that there was going to be an opportunity to do a book, we, we knew we had the right author um, because he was uh, uh, a college goalie. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dad. Princeton, right? Yep. yep. Yeah. So he was a college goalie at Princeton and, and certainly knows the ranks and the history and, and hockey uh, is, was, was, you know, in his DNA too. So it was nice to work with an author that, that knew the game and understood the, the hockey family and, uh, uh, and it was interesting. I wrote that book my what my freshman year while I was at BU, um, and he was my ghostwriter. And he'd come in uh, a couple times a week or once a week for for uh, two, three, four months. And and he would just ask me, you know, tell me about your dad or tell me about your mom or what's your first memories of hockey and tell me about the moment of your accident in that day. And I would just tell the stories. And I, I feel it's it's cliche to say it's, it was cathartic, but it, it really was for me. Um, I probably got as much therapy in, in uh, writing that book and talking with Ed as, as anything. Um, but I was also a little slow. I, I never – wasn't until I got the first draft when I realized, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a book. And I, I pretty much poured my heart and soul into it and, and, and maybe told them – shared more than I um, more than I intended. But um, I also think it's what's made the book as good as it as it, as it, uh, as it is and, or – has done as well as it as it's done, um, and I didn't know if it was going to be something that I regretted or something that I'd be proud of. And it's nice to know that 25 years later, or, or really even a year later, I was very proud of it. And and it's been neat to see it used in um, in schools across this country as required reading. And and uh, it's still uh, you're never going to get rich writing a book. I know that, but I, I still get a royalty check for a few hundred dollars uh, every uh, twice a year. Um, 
uh, and it's uh, it was it was a fun process. It was neat to neat to do. It was also actually brought me out your way in Minnesota because I uh, for my book tour I I went out for the state championship um, and they they had the uh, the expo there um, in addition to the to the tournament weekend and what a what an experience that is to 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 be in that. What was it back then? What was the name of the rink? Um, the St. Paul uh, Civic and, Center, probably. Yeah, yep. and it was yep. it was so cool to see high school hockey with a with you know seventeen thousand fans there. So uh, thank you. It, it's it, it's not what the the state Minnesota State High School hockey tournament's not what it used to be when I was young. But I don't know if there's anything that is like what it used to be. Uh, and back when. Uh, hundred years ago when I was young, they had only one division. Now they've got two. And as a matter of fact, I talked with a gentleman who I'm hoping to be able to do a podcast with, uh, John Masich, who played on the 1956 and 60 Olympic teams, along with some guys from the East Coast. But most of the guys that did a lot of the work and were the reason for their success were Minnesota boys, just like the 80 team. Uh, tongue in cheek, but uh, it, he, I think he still holds some records. Uh, he played out of a little town called Eveleth where the uh, U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame is. And it was, uh, it, it was special for me. I got to meet him for the first time last fall, and I'm looking forward to being able to do uh, a podcast with him, and hopefully we get uh, one of the Cleary brothers on as well to talk yeah. about the 60 team. But, yeah, oh. it, it's uh, it's – that that is an interesting experience. Let, let's maybe branch into the foundation now and talk about um, your foundation that you created, the Travis Roy Foundation, and what it's done from its uh, uh, when it first began and where it is today. Uh, the the foundation came to be. I was literally still in the hospital um, in in Boston, um, and it came out. At, after my accident, there was so much goodwill, um, so many letters that, that came in in support of myself and my family. And there were fruit baskets and there were teddy bears and there were flowers. And it got to be so uh, almost overwhelming. And my parents and my uh, cousins, they would take the extra fruit baskets and flowers and they'd deliver them all around the, the hospital to share with other people that didn't have the, the, the support of families nearby. And, and one of my one of the early days, I was down on the rehab floor. Um, and doing my range of motion. And, and there was a, a mother of one of the other spinal cord injured um, survivors there. And, and uh, she was in the rehab uh, room and, and the gym. And, and she, um, she had a nervous breakdown right there in front of everybody. And she was just in tears. And uh, it was a little scary. And it was also everybody was sort of wondering, you know, what's going on and what, what happened. And, um, and it finally started to trickle out that she had just gotten off the phone with the insurance company and they were not going to um, provide uh, the, the medical bed. Um, they weren't going to cover it. And um, she just wanted to bring her son home. And they had already, I would say, uh, spent the money they had that, to, to cover some of this. And, and it's such a burden, um, short term and long term, this injury financially. Um, and I just remember thinking that. Um, uh, just my heart broke for him. But at the same time, it turned out I had really good insurance. I had the NCAA catastrophic insurance policy was in place. My my mother was an educator and had a great policy. There was money that was raised for me. And, and, it, and it became clear that 
it wasn't going to be perfect for me, but I was I was going to be a lot better, uh, lot better off than, than most people going through this. And I thought, well, maybe we can raise some money to do th two things. One was I also want to get the hell out of this wheelchair. Uh, I, I wanted a cure. I wanted I was right there on Christopher Reeves, uh, you know, heels, you know, research, research. We'll, we'll bring this to an end in five years. Um, but I also knew people needed relief um, immediately. And, and so we started the foundation. Half the money we raise uh, goes towards research. Um, and we've provided several million dollars over the years. To, to top uh, researchers around the country. Um, and and we're, we're getting closer. Um, but maybe the thing that I'm almost as proud, if not more proud of, is, is the adaptive equipment grants that we have given out over the years. And, and we purchase wheelchairs and we purchase medical beds and we purchase uh, lifts to get up the uh, either into the front door or, or up to the second floor um, and uh, driving modifications. It's incredible what people can do these days. Um, with a disability, if they just have the right equipment. Um, and unfortunately, 90-something percent of our applicants are all on Social Security disability. Um, they have no real additional money to, to make upgrades to their equipment. Um, and and it's, uh, it's a big challenge. So we, we provide those grants. We, we give out about uh, between thirty and $40,000. Um, we used to be up to sixty seventy thousand dollars $70,000 before the pandemic. But... Um, uh, and, and we help out usually 10, 15, maybe 20 applicants a month. And uh, uh, one of my favorite stories is we, we gave a grant to a gentleman um, living, living in the South, and, and he had three daughters, and uh, he just wanted a lift so that he could get up to the second floor and, and tuck in his, in his girls. And, and he, would, uh, he wrote a letter, a thank you letter, and he said, uh, I just want you to know on the ride up um, on, on the lift that we helped help purchase, he said, I, on the ride up, I thank God, and on the ride down, I thank the Travis Ray Foundation. Um, so it's just little stories like that where you really, we've really been able to change lives. And if you go to the Travis Ray Foundation.org website and you go to our YouTube page, um, we've got a lot of neat profile videos on, uh, on individuals that, that we've impacted. And, and, and when you give a grant, it's not just that person, your life you're changing. Uh, you're changing the parents, you're changing the care tenants, so they're not having to hurt their back um, because now they have the right lift to get to get their loved one in and out of the bed. Um, and and there's just no breaks when it comes to paralysis. It just goes on and on. So the foundation has been a great, um, as I say, a big piece of my life. Um, and it's also, I also get to see the, the best of humanity every day uh, because we don't get big grants from big foundations or institutes or um, corporations, uh, all of our money is primarily raised through, um, through, through events, um, mostly through athletic events. We do a, uh, charity hockey challenge at, at, uh, Madison Square Garden in New York. Um, we'll be, we don't have a date yet, obviously with everything that's going on, but we hope to hold that, um, next winter. Uh, we do one at the United Center in Chicago. Uh, we do our annual bean pot charity challenge and it's basically just guys in their twenties, thirties, forties. Um, even 50s and 60s, and and uh, and we get to to go to these famed arenas and uh, play a pickup hockey game, and then uh, give them a nice gift and a nice uniform, and then we uh, come back later that night and and watch the the home team take on um, whoever they're playing. But uh, so the Blackhawks have been great, the uh, the Rangers, and and certainly um, the Beanpot tournament. Uh, so last year I think it, it raised nearly uh, three quarters of a million dollars. Um, which is which has been great, and then of course we got wiffle ball. Well, it's 
on my bucket list to do whatever I can to help out the Travis Roy Foundation. And it's something that hopefully uh, you won't be able to say, well, we aren't getting big uh, corporate sponsorship. Uh, one of these days, you never can tell who you bump into. I spread the story around as much as I can. And hopefully one day it'll fall on the right ears and it'll be that big pot of gold for you. But you guys are doing amazing work. And as I tell people, no donation is too small or too big uh, for what you do uh, to help people out. Um, and, and speaking of that, and then we can get into the wiffle ball tournament because we know that that was supposed to take place this weekend. But unfortunately, uh, the world we're living in today has changed everything. Uh, can you tell us what people can do to help your foundation? How do they go about making donations? What other things can they do to help the Travis Roy Foundation out? Sure. Uh, so right now, this is our Wiffle Ball weekend, uh, and we've got to have a week-long uh, um, campaign going, mostly virtual. Uh, the um, We do have an online silent auction. If you go to the, the website and click on the Wiffle Ball weekend, you'll find a link to our online silent auction. We've got some great things, including our remote control Zamboni. Thanks to the, thanks to Zamboni. Thank you. Remote control cooler uh, Zamboni model, I guess I should say, which is fantastic. Um, and then the other thing... Uh, People are having a lot of fun helping us spread awareness and uh, and also raising some money. But we have the TRF Wiffle Ball Challenge, and we're asking people to record quick, you know, 30, 60-second videos uh, with a wiffle ball and bat. It does have to be an authentic wiffle ball and, and bat um, because we use wiffle in our title and, you know, how the, the, the trademark branding people are. Um, and we, uh, we, we share the videos, and, and we ask people, A, to record a quick video hitting a wiffle ball over – some unique landmark or just getting creative with a wolf ball and bat um, and, uh, and maybe tag one or two or three other people to take on the challenge or to make a donation. Um, and it's uh, it, it's similar to the ice bucket challenge or some of these other kind of gimmick, gimmicky things we've, we've seen, but um, there's a lot of heavy, heavy things, heavy uh, topics in our, in our country, whether it's uh, the racial injustice, whether it's the pandemic. And uh, this is just an opportunity to do something fun in your backyard with your family and, uh, or just by yourself and record a video, post it, and uh, and help make us uh, put a smile on those of us that get to watch them. I, I will say that Hockey East coaches in particular have been fantastic. Um, I think pretty much every one of them uh, has, has posted a video. Uh, a lot of hockey players across the country. We need a few more of the, uh, the Midwestern uh, colleges and uh, players to get involved, and, of course, of the, the West Coast. Um, so um, it's uh, TRF – sorry, hashtag – Batter up TRF. Uh, go online, check them out. Any of the social media platforms, uh, people can post their videos too, and, and they're pretty entertaining. Well, we and did it, our. And it, and it goes, it go, it goes through August, the end of August. Even though the the tournament, by the time people hear this, the the tournament sort of will be over. But uh, the batter up TFR will continue throughout the month of August, if I'm correct on that, Trav. Yep, exactly. We we actually have a neat. Uh, We've got three categories of prizes too, whether it's the uh, the the biggest whiff video or most creative uh, landmark or or the best overall uh, video, and uh, we're gonna have ten winners. And, and the Red Sox have been great. And we're gonna take them to, to Fenway Park. We're gonna get down in uh, left field, and then people are gonna have an opportunity to try to hit a wiffle ball over the real green monster. So um, there, there's uh, there's there's some some cool prizes if you post your videos. And again, hashtag batter up TRF. That's awesome. And we had our attempt at that today. I'm going to point that out to people. 
Uh, if you go to any of the Zamboni uh, social media stuff, which that falls into the younger crowd, it's not something that I'm an expert at, but uh, I had visions of us lining up uh, some machines a la Evil Knievel. And again, as an old person, uh, your father and I know who Evil Knievel is and try to hit the <laughs> wiffle ball over the row of Zamboni machines uh, in an effort to bring attention uh, to your organization and raising money, which is, uh, th this raising the money is about helping change people's lives. And it it's a great thing for anybody that's out there. If you hear this after uh, the month of August, uh, that doesn't mean you can't still donate to the foundation to help them help others. So. Uh, you talked a little bit, Travis, about the fields, and um, maybe between you and your dad, you can let us know uh, about them and where they're located. I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go visit. It was incredible. What an incredible weekend. And uh, I know you have like a hashtag for that weekend, too. So uh, fill us in about the fields. Sure. The, the best weekend of the year um, is what we call it. Um, and it. And it really is. We've got 32 teams that come from all across the country. And, uh, and the wiffle ball is a cause, but uh, there's uh, I think I'd, everybody would be lying if they didn't say that people get excited about visiting uh, the Little Fenway in Essex, Vermont. Um, ironically, Pat O'Connor, he read the book, my book, 11 Seconds, uh, 20 years ago, and he got done reading, and he thought uh, he had just finished building this replica Fenway Park in his backyard. He thought maybe we could do a fundraiser. And uh, so we bid on it, and we had seven teams, and it rained, you know, cats and dogs. Uh, we raised $2,500 and, and never had, had, had we ever had more fun raising money. Um, and uh, it's grown over the years. Now we've got the little Wrigley Field. We've got the little Field of Dreams with the corn in the outfield. Uh, and, and last year we raised just under $800,000 uh, for a total of nearly uh, uh, over $6 million. Uh, so to, to think that we're raising that kind of money in a cow field in Essex, Vermont, it's, 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 it's more than a cow field, certainly. but uh, uh, again, it's, uh, I said it earlier on, I, I get to see the best of humanity. There's so much good out there and I know everybody's dealing with some extra anxiety and, and stress these days, but there's so much good out there. And, uh, uh, the tournament has been a big part of that. And my, my dad sort of become the, uh, he used to manage ice rink is now he's a caretaker and, uh, one of the caretakers, a little Fenway. So he, he's got a few stories probably too. Well, it's just, I think, uh, for people listening that they can go to the Travis Roy Foundation. And, Trav, I, I don't know how many videos, at least two or three, that uh, the, the drone one is really good where uh, it, it stands up as it goes up and so forth. But the Mullaney family, which are the inventors of Wiffle Ball out of Connecticut, uh, they say that they're in touch with, you know, the hundreds of thousands of teams that play throughout the world. And the facility that we have in Essex, Vermont, uh, is the only one like it. There are other facilities that have one field, two fields, but he says there's only one place that has three fields that are replicas and, and truly replicas in the sense that Pat O'Connor, when they built a little, uh, excuse me, Little Wrigley, he actually went out to Chicago to the Cubs because he was a big fan. And uh, they gave him a sprig of ivy and, and dirt from the infield to take back. And to this day, the ivy has grown and spread. We had to add to it and so forth. 
but that original sprig is still sprouts every spring and, and, and goes throughout and the sand is, is still mixed in with what we have there. Um, so it, you know, if you'd like to see it, just go to the Travis Roy Foundation and pull up one of the videos that uh, give you a chance to see uh, three exact replicas of three iconic fields, certainly. It, Lee, what are the dimensions? Because I've been trying to explain to people and to the wonderful guys that uh, were given the wiffle ball uh, a whack uh, at our plant in Canada. Um, what are the dims to clear like the left field wall uh, at Little Fenway and Little Wrigley? What is it to get it out to the bleachers? uh about 95 feet trev is that i mean yeah. obviously when when you make when you make replicas you know you put the the footage that's on the actual field so when you look out at the green monster it, it says whatever it is supposed to be at, at fenway back you know um and it, and it, it makes me think that you know for those that are red sox fans they know the pesky pole which is in right field we were very fortunate when John Pesky was still alive. Uh, he came up to the tournament, and of course, one of the traditions at Fenway Park is to sign the Fenway, uh, Pesky Pole. And so we actually got John to sign the Pesky Pole at Little Fenway. Um, so, anyways, I, getting back to your question, Trav, I want to say approximately 95 feet to left field and yeah. pretty much the same to right. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's correct. And, uh, there, there's also a, a, a literally a website devoted to the fields. It hasn't been updated a little bit, but littlefenway.com. Uh, and I believe the dimensions and, and a lot of the story of the fields are, are right there. Um, and, uh, and and if you're if you're really a diehard, you can go to homerunpat at gmail.com. And uh, Pat Pat is the 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 encyclopedia of all things wiffle uh, uh, around this country beyond what uh, the the Fenway the wiffle company has. So uh, he's he's always keeping abreast at all that all the different replica fields around the country based for based for wiffle ball and, and we're fortunate doug that uh when he first built little fenway for his kids who are all hockey players and that's the connection there uh, plus the hockey committee uh, excuse me the wiffle ball committee i think 90 percent of them had kids that played hockey and that's why they've been involved for years and years but uh the the whole concept uh you know was packed and he drew it out on a napkin and uh got volunteers to, to build it and then the same is true with uh, the field of dreams and uh little uh wrigley it was all volunteers everything that you see there just about was donated and to bring another hockey name in in more recent uh, is the name Pelkey, which uh, in Vermont is recognized. And if you follow the USA hockey uh, women's team, uh, Amanda Pelkey uh, was on the gold medal winning team. And her father, John, uh, has a lot to do with the uh, granite industry in Barrie, Vermont. And, and John brought up about 800 uh, pieces of granite that uh, head, would have been headstones at Arlington National and donated, get those donated to help us uh, build Field of Dreams. And, and John really almost single-handedly uh, built Field of Dreams. So, you know, it's just another this 
so many different connections in everything that goes on out those fields. And of course, to get there, you go across a one-lane bridge, and then you get off the the tad road, and you you drive for a mile and a quarter on a dirt road, and all of a sudden you come and there's Fenway Park, you know, uh, Little Wrigley and, and Field of Dreams. It, it just blows everybody's mind that this place exists really in, on the on the earth, and to get there, you 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 have to know where you're going. <laughs> But it, it was an amazing adventure for me a couple of years ago uh, to come up and experience it. And again, I thank you and your family for that opportunity. Uh, it, it's it, it's something anybody who's listening, and I wish I had two million followers that were listening to this that I could say go out and visit. I uh, don't want to bite off more than you guys can chew up there, but it, it's certainly something that you can go. And the food trucks that were there. Uh, were amazing uh, just watching it and then for me to see I think it was the first year one of your family members won and what was yeah it, yeah what was interesting was the game they were ahead in the game and then it got they were playing a New York team and it was like Bucky Fleepin' Dent all over again when a guy <laughs> hit a home run and I'm like, am I going to have to watch the Yankees beat another team? Not, it's not bad enough that they beat the Minnesota Twins all the time, but am I going to have to watch this? And fortunately, I think it was one of your nephews that uh, won with the yeah. home run into the net uh, in extra innings. Yeah. So um, yeah. That, yeah, that, that, that was Staten spectacular. Staten Island Yankees versus the Blue Bulls, and they took the – Blue Bulls, 14 years. They started when they were, what, Trav, eighth and ninth graders, put that team together somewhere around there. And, yeah. and now they've all got families and, and kids. And uh, it took them 14 years to win their first championship. Uh, the Staten Island Yankees, I want to say, have won three. Um, so, it, yeah, it, that, that was a, an exciting weekend for you to be there. And, it, of course, for those that, you know, I know you came up here on business, Doug, that there were numerous times that you had to leave to go talk uh, and sell Zambonis to uh, people in Vermont. So I don't want Richard uh, thinking you were, you know, slacking off during that visit. Oh, no, no, no. There, there was, as a matter of fact, Essex Junction was right on the list of people that I stopped on the way up and on the way back. Uh, but it, it was a, a love of labor for me to give up my weekend to, to go visit that for the first time because you guys had asked me to come up so many times. And I was just yeah. happy that I was able to finally, uh, finally do so. And maybe you can expand a little bit. I've tried to explain to people, and they're they don't quite understand. And maybe there aren't the people who uh, are true wiffle ball fans. And I appreciate the fact that you guys are so attentive to the trademark. And that's what I explained to our people. You know, we're telling everybody all the time about the Zamboni trademark. Uh, that wiffle is yeah. the official. There, there's only one wiffle. And it's important that that's the product that gets used. But tell us about the pitchers maybe a little bit, because there was a guy from <laughs> New York that looked like he a left-hander that could throw all day long. And then there's a tall, lanky kid that uh, was striking out 95% uh, of the people that came to the bat. All, all world. They, they refer to Billy Doyle of the Boston Beef, uh, who won the championship three times. The, he's known as all world. He probably has 12 different pitches. Um, what's uh, the Yankees? 
Trev, I watched last Joey, night the picture. Joey, Joey, Joey Tyrone, Joey Tyrone Joey. from Staten Island. He's he's yeah. seventy something years old, and and uh, he can he can, he's got a dozen pitches as well. And it's it's uh, it's interesting though because we do have a speed limit. Um, we try to keep the speeds down, so you got to really know how to how to make that ball move and and throw a lot of junk uh, to be successful. And uh, the new the new teams that come up. Uh, it's a, it's a steep learning curve to to catch up with the veterans and uh, and the the craft that that people have put into throwing a wiffle ball. I mean, in, also... in the in the major in, in the major league, you you know you see a pitcher's got three or four pitches and he's a success. If you can't throw at least ten different pitches and control them, uh, you, you're not going to be successful at the uh, Travis Roy Foundation wiffle ball tournament, no, no matter how good your team is. Lee, could you also um, maybe expand, or Travis, uh, on the teams that had come up there? I was absolutely amazed that there was one, was it from Alabama, that had come all yep. the way up there? So uh, of the teams that you get from around the country, I don't know if it's around the world or not, but maybe let us know where some of those teams have come from. We, they're, they're, the teams initially, again, it was very much a, a Vermont-centric um, and then we, we started to grow the amount of teams that could play as we added fields. Um, and, uh, teams started coming from, from new places, but, uh, we've, we've, most of them are from the Northeast. We had a team from Georgia last year. We have the team from Alabama that came. We had a team from Hawaii that was trying to, trying to figure it out and make it work. And it, and it fell through at the last minute. Uh, but what, what's interesting, again, doing something for 20 years and, and people have been so loyal to our event, um, that, uh, a number of the players, have flown the coop, so to say, um, but they all come back for Wiffle Ball Weekend, and we, we have people, uh, several from California and around the country. We had we had one, one guy on the Boston Beef that uh, quit his job. He just he was in India, I think, and just wasn't liking it. And he Wiffle Ball tournament was coming up. He said, "I'm out of here. I'm done." He quit his job and flew back just in time to to be back at the fields for the Wiffle Ball tournament. So it's a pretty uh, devoted group of people, and and it's one of those things. Once you see it, once you um, participate, uh, uh, you, you, you're hooked. Once, once the hook is set, um, you're, you're, you're not, you're not getting off and, uh, it's, it's fun to be a part of something that people, uh, enjoy, um, that much and, and want to come back to every year. And, and the other side of it, Doug, uh, going back, you know, 20 years ago, 19 or whichever way we want to look at it, uh, of the seven teams that played on that pouring rain day, uh, rainy day of the seven teams four still uh, play every year so well, a lot of them are grandkids they're second yeah. generation yeah yeah so it's really it's really neat you know to think that the the people uh that dedicated you know to to the whole thing because it's it's more than just wiffle ball there's, there's so much going on out there throughout that weekend that uh you, you know is it was like one of the vendors you talked about you know the food and, and we have a food court for those that aren't familiar with it and uh we have six or seven vendors that come out and i want to say every one of those vendors when the weekend's over turn most of their profits into the foundation. Yeah, it, yesterday, it, yeah, yesterday was it yesterday day before Trav, one of the vendors called up and said, Hey, Lee, you're going to be home tomorrow. 
uh, I want to bring you up something. And I said, great. You know, he knows I love cotton candy. He, he, he makes cotton candy never at the end of the tournament. He always gives me two or three bags to take home. And he came out and that's what he does for a living is he goes from fairs to fairs and events and so forth. And of course with COVID, it's been a tough year for him, but, uh, he came out and brought me my candy, cotton candy. And then he made a significant uh, <laughs> donation. Well, I know it's an emotional thing for you as it is for me. Um, yeah. it, it's it's something that, uh, again, I hope that everybody gets the opportunity to experience it because it is incredible and it's amazing. The camaraderie, even between the Yankee fans and the Red Sox fans, uh, what goes on yeah. up there. Um, yeah. The, the always, other thing. Always, yeah, the only thing, Doug, is always the second weekend in August. So if people ever think about coming up, just playing on the second week of August, the weekend of August, uh, we'll be playing. And there's multiple levels. That's what I remember. And uh, you mentioned about grandkids now being participants in this. I remember going up there and, and seeing you coaching uh, all the, the grandkids that were there. And uh, your granddaughter, it's, is it Olivia, I think? that yep. swung the swung the bat one-handed and it was able yep. to hit the ball into the cornfield so so okay. it it's amazing it's not just for the the foundation which obviously is the number one goal but it's the event it's an event and it's really uh something people ought to put on their bucket list yeah we'd love we'd love to have as many as we can get up there and, and experience it and see it and enjoy it and have the fun that we do. And it, it's like a reunion every year uh, for all those the people that have participated uh, over the, the 19 years. So a lot of fun. That's great. Um, I, I want to touch a little bit on uh, your mom, Lee, um, Lois. What a, <laughs> <laughs> what a, and, and Trav's grandma, what a spectacular lady. Um, I will never forget, it goes back many moons, when there is some drama going on in my life and you and I were in Vegas and you were going to <laughs> rent, rent a car and drive to visit your mom in Sedona. And I said, well, if you don't mind letting me drive you, uh, I'll be happy if I can tag along with you. And I can remember going and seeing the Phoenix Symphony play at an amphitheater in, in Sedona and the colors yep. are etched, etched in my mind. And I wasn't on any yep. kind of mind-altering drugs, but maybe touch a little bit on your mom because she was a truly special lady to me and my now wife, uh, as well as to your family. Can you share a little bit of a couple stories about Lois? Well, mom, mom was born in 1917. And uh, is that my phone going off? Uh, yours, Trav. No. Are you hearing that noise? No. Okay. Uh, my mother was born in 1917, and she just died two months ago. So she was 102 years old, um, which is is quite a uh, an accomplishment in in anybody's uh, life that way. But she uh, she took a lot of grief um, because Travis became her pride and joy, and so. After the accident, he, she always referred to him as his her P and J, and uh, so. But she just she loved sports. 
She loved the uh, Bruins, and even at age 102, she was so disappointed when the season ended um, that that I think that was one of the things that that got her upset with uh, uh, the COVID. It ruined that. But she just she enjoyed life. Uh, she lived by the uh, saying that she would rather. Uh, rust uh, uh she didn't want to rust out she'd rather wear out than rust out and then the last thing i'll share is when we celebrated her 100th birthday uh, she said probably about three or four months afterwards we had a big party in massachusetts for her at the, the assisted living home she was at uh, she said about five or six months afterwards she looked at me dead in the eye and she said you know after my hundredth, it's been all downhill. And I thought, <laughs> you know, if she could say that she's lived, you know, a hundred years uh, of, of, of full life, active life, uh, God bless her soul. And, and you know, it, it took COVID to, to kill her because uh, we were convinced she was going to live uh you know, <laughs> my wife said 105. Um, but anyway, she was she was a, a one of a kind, I guess. She was. And I've got a couple stories of uh, when I visited her in, was it Wayland or Waveland that uh, she was in uh, at the yeah. end? Um, I went and sat down at a table with her and two other uh, ladies that were that, that were there and uh, it was an interesting experience and uh, she I was I think I was waiting for Lois to come down to the table and was talking to the two ladies uh, and was telling them yeah I met Lois in Sedona Arizona and she was driving a red Mustang convertible and the two ladies eyes lit up like silver dollars and it was just so funny they're like going Lois had a had a convertible. I go, yeah. I said, she's quite oh, yeah. the lady. And then when she was in a, a senior home in Sedona and going over there and visiting her, and she only lasted there for a little while. And her comment was, eight, I'm not, eight, I'm not eight, old enough to be here. <laughs> well, that was the thing she said when she called me up. She said, you know, you're not going to be happy with me because, uh, my mother and I had a very close relationship. My my sister had already died. But anyway, she said, you know, you're not going to be happy with my decision. She said, but I just can't stand it here. She said, everybody here is old. And she was 88 <laughs> years old at the time. And she said, everybody was old. And she did. She moved out. She got in a house and moved in there and lived for another five years uh, before she finally at age 90, uh, two years later, excuse me, at age 90, Let's see. Yeah, ninety. She left Sedona, lived with my brother until he died in ninety-five. Uh, no, it was later than that. But anyway, uh, he died. So then I was the only one left. And uh, uh, for the last five years of her life, uh, she'd gone through two husbands and, and buried two of her children. And I told her, and Travis will verify this because he was there when I told her. I told her a number of times that, Mom, if you outlive me. I'm really going to be pissed at you. And she, <laughs> and she, she laughed and, and, and said, well, I hope it doesn't happen. So anyways, thank you well, for my mom oh. was special. And I'm glad that you got to, you and Vanjie got to know her. And uh, we, we all, all enjoyed it. That's for sure. 
she she was an incredible lady who loved you, Travis, as well as uh, your siblings, and uh, just a very special lady who touched a lot of people's lives. And when Lee and I were in Sedona that uh, first time I met her, uh, she had younger friends than either Lee and I were that uh, wanted to know, <laughs> know, you know, who we were and what was going on. And I will yeah. never for, for the life of me forget when we, Vanjie and I went to Sedona, uh, it's about four years ago now because uh, the gentleman who was my best man, who's a, a very big part of my life, uh, we went to Sedona the year he died and that was in February. And we went to the thrift shop that your mom worked at. Uh-huh. And I go, yep. this is a, a place I picked up a friend of mine. Her name was Lois. Do you know, oh, did you, do you know Lois? The, the people that were working there still knew who she was and still wanted to know what yep. was going on. And uh, it, it was something else. So uh, a very special lady who I thank both of you for sharing uh, sharing with me. Um, we're, <laughs> we, we've exceeded the time that I've asked of you guys. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about today about the Travis Roy Foundation? Or Travis, we can get into a little puck if you want. <laughs> no, you know, I, I think we're good. You, you're a lot of... A lot of great stories, and uh, I, I will say that too quick. I'm going to tie it back into the Zamboni piece, though, because I always remember it was such a big deal when um, when you'd see somebody, a coach, holding off to the back of a Zamboni while somebody was driving it around. And I always dreamed of that day of, of being able to like hold on to the Zamboni and, and get pulled by the Zamboni. And um, you know, my dad uh, took over managing the, the the rink at NYA again. That was one of my first things, and. And then I finally got up in the seat. I was 14 years old, and uh, I, uh, I started with a skate sharpener and, and then had about six years driving uh, driving the Zamboni. Um, I could, even the new electric one when it first came out. But uh, I always it's always been fun to have the ties to, to, to Zamboni and, um, and the family and, 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 of course, to you, Doug. Well, your family has been awesome uh, to the Zamboni company. We appreciate it. Uh, all the recognition that we've got through you guys. We appreciate your help. Frank appreciates the help of getting his bus started when he had that. And he can tell you exactly how many miles it goes on a tank of gas from Brantford to yep. the parking lot of uh, North Yarmouth Academy. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's, and- as, that's as far as it will go. There was no more diesel fuel when you make that trip. Yep. That was that was that was a memorable one of the many memorable experiences with the Zamboni family uh, that I've had, Doug. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just been a, you know, a part of my life and part of Travis's. And I don't know, I know you, you your trivia stuff. So I don't know, Doug is is fourteen. Is do you know anybody younger than that? That's, I'm is, sure. You know, I mean, <laughs> there had to have been younger. You would add me on there earlier if you uh, if you'd been in if you've been working at that ring sooner. So. I, I'd hate to know what the uh, youngest age is. Well, knowing your father the way I do, uh, Travis, he probably had you driving at 14 because you were free help. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, he always knew how to save money, Doug. <laughs> he, he's one of those thrifty guys where when he was painting his ice, he would always go rent a pump and then bring it back after the paint was clogged up the pump and it had stopped pumping the paint and go, I don't know what happened to this thing or why it stopped working. And then the next yeah. year, you'd come back and get another one to do the same same trick. So, no, yeah. it, you guys have been great. And you both mean an awful lot to the Zamboni family. 
I know that uh, Richard and Alice, I just uh, was lucky enough to spend a couple hours with them a few weeks ago. They said to send you their best and uh, thank you very much for uh, for your hospitality today. And we want to thank everyone for listening in to another episode of Ask the Zamboni Expert podcast. Have a question for one of our experts or an idea for a future episode? Please email your questions or request to info at Zamboni.com. For more info and additional podcast episodes, please visit Zamboni.com forward slash podcast or search Ask the Zamboni Experts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This is Doug Peters wishing you an ice day.